This is the first of two conversations with the historian Aisha Jalal in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden with the South Asia historian Aisha Jalal. She teaches at Tufts University in the States. We're in her hometown, Lahore, the heart of the Punjab from time immemorial and the cultural capital of Pakistan. We're looking for connections between the birth pangs of this nation and now what feels like a major midlife crisis. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University, an American conversation with some Pakistani attitude this summer of 2011. Aisha Jalal, you've been a big figure in the revision and the rewriting of the partition story about the founding of Pakistan in 1947. We'll get to all that, but first, I'm dying to know your sense of Lahore and Pakistan this summer. What are you finding? Well, people are uh, depressed, disassociated, I think. Uh, There's a sense of apathy. Uh, there's also a lot of concern, uh, but generally I think there's just depression. Uh, but mm. the kind of depression that is not going anywhere in terms of looking for solutions, and that's what's worrying uh, a little bit. You don't see any mobilization or clarification of much, or even drawing of lines? No, I think people are trying, uh, but I do think that there's a lot of, the, the narratives are mutually conflicting, so there's a lot of confusion that's generated, and despite having a relatively free electronic media, Uh, There's just so much contrary stuff coming to people that people are finding it very hard Mm -hmm. uh, to really understand what their best interests are. Uh, There's a general sort of anti-Americanism that is harped on. It's just a kind of a shorthand for many of the ills of this country. Uh, so I do think that there is a lot of confusion, a lot of proneness to conspiracy theory. Um, uh, uh, you know, Pakistan's been referred to as paranoidistan, uh, that people are paranoid. They feel that there is a everything that's wrong with this country is either an externally uh, instigated uh, move. I mean, whether it's Karachi today, uh, we have uh, headlines today, as you see in the papers, uh, it's external hands creating trouble in Karachi. So there's a lot of that sense. All of the problems of Pakistan are gifts from abroad. So I do think that there's an inability to um, accept responsibility, and I I attribute that to long periods of uh, derailment of the political process, military rule, people are sort of... I mean, on the one hand, there are groups that feel empowered, they try, but the general masses, I mean, the the poor, ordinary Pakistanis, too busy uh, trying to make a living. Mm. Uh, So they're not really understanding why there's not enough energy, why there's not enough employment, why there's so much inflation. These are the issues that matter. As for the broader questions of Pakistan's role in the Afghan war, uh, the U.S. withdrawal, the imminent U.S. withdrawal, these are issues that concern some people, but people are just carrying on with their lives with the result that there is a disconnect, I fear, uh, between those who make policy and those people on the streets. So I think mm-hmm. those are the things that one has to reckon with. People seem to accept a total disconnect. There's a political realm in which brokers wrestle, abuse each other, conspire with the CIA or against the CIA, uh, fun and games uh, that has almost no connection to the economy or, or yeah, the absolutely. history. 
Well, I think that when when, when there has been uh, in the post-independence period suspension of uh, democratic processes for such extensive periods of time and and the the role of the state, the role of the intelligence agencies uh, and the use of the state by elements uh, who are dominant in the society, as the people just have not felt that they are part of the process of decision-making, with the result that today there is a proneness, as I said, to uh, a feeling that the elite are in cahoots with the U.S., and that's basically the main issue, that that there is a lot of contempt uh, and anger at what is seen as a sellout to the United States' uh, interests, Um, with the result that there is a sense of... um, anti-Americanism, which is not necessarily uh, based on any hard evidence, but generally everything that's wrong in this country somehow or the other is is deemed to be connected to the United States and its Mm. plots to to destabilize Pakistan. And the ultimate fare, as you're aware, is to basically denuke Pakistan, to uh, to seize its assets. That is the big sort of conspiracy theory here. Aisha Jalal, you remind me why we love historians. Widen the frame. See today in the context of a century, maybe where we're going, that's an important part, how this period will look from 30, 40 years down the road, but also to connect today to the beginning. Start with a sort of future hindsight view from 2050 or 2030. What will we remember about this wrangle with the states in 2011? Well, I think it's a question of this being one of the more turbulent periods in Pakistan's history. There's no question about that. I mean, after 71, what Pakistan is undergoing has 71, to be... 71, the break off the break of Bangladesh. Up, break up of Pakistan, the, the breakaway of Bangladesh, following mm. a very brutal and uh, traumatic civil war. Uh, so it will be... Rem- I mean, this, there is a kind of civil war. I mean, it's, it, it has to be seen as, as the insurgency in the northwest... Uh, the continuing nationalist movement in Balochistan, it is reminiscent of the 1971 period, so it will be seen as a very crucial period. I, I generally tend to think that the assassination of Benazir Bhutto is a key moment, and what happens after that, um, I mean, it obviously was already there, but her assassination, the removal of the kind of leadership the country needed, did result in a particular kind of freefall that Pakistan mm. seems to be in. Having said that, I'm not a subscriber to those who see Pakistan as a failed state. I don't even think that the concept applies to Pakistan. Mm. Um, but what is happening is that you are in a scenario where the state, the post-colonial state that Pakistan is, um, is no longer really capable of um, uh, carrying out all that it has undertaken to do. So it it doesn't have the capacities anymore. Part Mm. of the state has been captured by local elements as well. So, I mean, the state itself is no longer effectual. Uh, The the country is becoming more ungovernable, has been for a long time, but now is on the verge of, I mean, it's complete sort of an ordered anarchy or disordered anarchy, if you like, whichever one you prefer. But clearly there is a problem in the way in which the country is run. So... um, I, I think that this period will be remembered for a period of a, a lot of un- uncertainty, a lot of um, a, a difficulty with, with leadership questions, mm. uh, the, the civilian government's inability to really take some hard decisions uh, and, and the continuing role of the military. So it will be a very important period. But I think that it will be remembered most importantly because of the war in Afghanistan, because the carryover or what you call the collateral damage for Pakistan has been enormous of but- this war. Fascinating that you mentioned the murder of Benazir Bhutto as a as a watershed. I don't hear people pining so much for Benazir as for 
the idea of her father as a sort of signature politician with popular roots and a populist agenda too, as it happens, but clearly a, a popular leader of this country that seems to be nothing like that around today. Well, I mean, exactly, because, I mean, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was a popular leader. He was also a leader in a particular period, 70s, uh, a time uh, when the world was in a very different scenario, and so was Pakistan. Uh, But Benazir Bhutto was a popular leader. Hmm. Uh, The problem in this country is that no popular leader has been allowed to survive and flourish for long. That is the issue. And so yeah. Benazir's assassination is re- uh, reminiscent of that continuing lack in Pakistan, the mm-hmm. fact that no leader has really survived, because uh, clearly there are people who find it inconvenient for political leaders, leaders to have a solid base of support. Mm-hmm. That's a threat to their power. Uh, this country, as you know, has had long stretches of military rule. There's an institutional imbalance, something I've talked about in my work, my earlier work, Uh, between elected and non-elected institutions. The military has dominated, calls the shots. So when there is a popular leader, I mean, there was Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, he was, uh, I mean, he was convicted and and, and hanged. And Benazir Bhutto was the next kind of, I mean, the emergent leader. Uh, So I do think that the, the absence, the inability of the powers that be to allow for the growth of real popular leadership is a very important issue. And her assassination from that perspective, with all her faults, I don't deny uh, her faults, her failures, that was a major event in Pakistan's history. What would Benazir Bhutto be saying about the war today, including the drones, but including the distinctions between the Pakistan Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, the the contention with the United States? Where, where would this be? I think there would be contention. Uh, Benazir would have differences with the United States. I think there's a general sense that the unilateral action in, 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 in Aptabad against uh, Osama bin Laden, if it was unilateral, um, we don't know. Uh, only time will tell. Uh, she would certainly uh, voice the concerns. She would. There would be tensions, but she would also be the first person, along with her team, trying to uh, iron out the creases uh, in that relationship. Uh, but yes, I do think that Benazir would have uh, uh, really bridged that gap between popular mm. uh, uh, sentiments. And I do think something has happened in Pakistan between 2007 and today where there is a sense that the Taliban are a problem, the Tariqa Taliban is a problem. I don't think that there is that kind of support. And I think there you've got to give it to Benazir. She was one of the first people historically. You asked me the question historically. People's memories are not as sort of good uh, when you're just following contemporary events. I think historically you'll have to sort of acknowledge that she had the guts and the courage to come out and say uh, at, at, at a time when certainly the opposition parties were not, that because they were condemning Musharraf's policy. She got up and supported mm. it at one level, but more than that, she had the backing of people, something that Musharraf could not have. He had the backing of the military. Aisha Jalal, I want to hear the historian's take on the life of Pakistan today. And as you say, it's unhappy, it's divided, but it's also leaderless. It's unhappily dependent on the United States. Pakistan today and the founding story. Well, I mean, the founding story of Pakistan really is that um, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the All India Muslim League, um, uh, wanted to negotiate a power-sharing arrangement uh, for Muslims, which would give them something close to equity um, in undivided India. These are critical words. A power-sharing arrangement, not a nation, 
a place at the table, but not a border. No, no. I mean, the, the issue is that, I mean, he, he declared the Muslims a nation because in the family of nations, big and small are equal. And the Muslims were a minority. So by declaring them a nation, uh, Jinnah and the Muslim League were claiming equal st- status to uh, the Congress. Mm. Uh, as you put it, I mean, Brother Gandhi has three votes and I have only one. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is, is he wanted equality. But having made the assertion of nation status for a minority... The, the presumption that the, the creation that the claim to nationhood is an inevitable overture to independent statehood is a leap of faith. Uh, it, 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 during that period, he was prepared to negotiate. He wanted to negotiate, if possible, a power-sharing arrangement with uh, what he called Hindustan, which consisted of the Hindu majority provinces, the Pakistan provinces with the Muslim majority provinces. Mm. Could you could they negotiate a power-sharing arrangement at the All India level? Um, uh, so that could have been uh, one option. Alternatively, they would make treaty arrangements as sovereign states on matters of common concern. In either way, Jinnah saw this as a connected, interconnected problem. A complete partition, especially a partition of the two main Muslim-majority provinces, was the last thing he wanted. Uh, so that's basically the point. So I mean, you know, in, 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 he wanted a Pakistan, a Pakistan as a way to win a large share of power for Muslims at the All India level. That didn't happen. Uh, so Pakistan was conceded, but a Pakistan was conceded based on the division of Punjab and Bengal, the two main Muslim-majority provinces, and also the violence that accompanied a partition as a result with the dis- massive dislocations mm. that took place. So that basically um, meant that the strategy went awry. Uh, he could not really attain all his aims. And as you know, um, there are as many Muslims, um, uh, if not more, if you uh, outside Pakistan uh, as they are within Pakistan today, if you add Pakistan, India and Bangladesh together. This dismemberment of, of the two great Muslim zones, the Punjab and Bengal seems, even today, to be... That is the real partition what, of India. Well, I, the, the real exa- partition of India is the partition of Punjab and Bengal. Exactly. And a very cruel stroke, no? That's right. I mean, and Jinnah always wanted undivided Punjab and Bengal, uh, but the, there was a flaw in his strategy because in order to make... I mean, his, his interests were at the All India level. He wanted to get a share of power at the All India level, nearing equity with the Congress... Uh, But that required undivided Punjab and Bengal. He had raised his demand for Pakistan as a specifically Muslim demand. And until he got his way at the All India level, he was not prepared to offer the kinds of concessions that were needed to placate the non-Muslims in Punjab and Bengal. So on the one hand, the Pakistan Mm. demand was purely for Muslim right of self-determination, but you couldn't deny the right of self-determination to non-Muslims. He had thought that he had plenty of time, that once the principle of Pakistan had been conceded, he would have time mm. at hand to try and placate or offer something to the non-Muslims. Well, that never happened. So with the result that, that uh, on March 8th, I mean, soon after the uh, British Prime Minister, uh, Attlee, Clement Attlee, announced the intention to withdraw no later than June 1948, the Congress, at the behest of the Hindu right-wing party, Hindu Mahasabha, called for the partition of Bengal and possibly of Punjab and Bengal, both. So um, that basically was something that he was opposed to, and uh, there's evidence to suggest that he continued to oppose this. He continued to say that it's completely wrong to confuse the principle of Pakistan with the partition of the provinces. And why did he sign off on it? He had no choice. I mean, on the June 3rd, when the plan was presented to him, Mountbatten told him that if he didn't accept it, uh, that he would accept it on his behalf. Shameful flight is what's 
the historian Stanley Wolper calls it, quoting Churchill about the British rush to leave and that Mountbatten deadline. I mean, in hindsight, weren't the Brits at best in a hurry to get in, in too much of a hurry to get out, and at worst, leaving a, a classic sort of divide and bleed and wound and in effect, control the future. I mean, well, I mean, I think, I think to be fair, I mean, the British made one last-ditch attempt to preserve uh, what they felt was uh, uh, a unity that they had uh, brought to India, an administrative unity, and that was uh, in 1946 at the time of the Cabinet Mission Plan. And, and, and you might remember that Mr. Jinnah accepted uh, what the Cabinet Mission offered um, uh, in terms of a federal arrangement, uh, uh, an all-India federal arrangement, in lieu of a sovereign Pakistan based on undivided Punjab and Bengal. So this was in, in, in the summer of '46, mm. um, And uh, uh, the, within a year, you had a Pakistan. So it was the inability of the Congress and the Muslim League to agree on uh, the modalities of the cabinet mission a proposal in terms of the powers at the All India level, in terms of a variety of other things, uh, that Jinnah reverted back to the demand for a, a Pakistan. But the only Pakistan he could get was based on undivided, uh, undivided Punjab and Bengal. They were partitioned, the provinces. Um, so effectively, the, the, the inability of the Congress and the Muslim League to work out a power-sharing arrangement is the cause of partition, mm. to cut a long story short. In, in what details today does a historian see that past still haunting Pakistan and India, for that matter? Well, I think, I mean, partition effectively destroyed the natural political unity of the subcontinent. I mean, for all the internal divisions, the subcontinent was never in its entire history divided along supposedly religious lines. I mean, the, the frontiers were not, I mean, based on religion. I mean, it has a long history. It has had a lot of uh, uh, uncertainty. But, but, but this, this was a huge... I mean, partition was a major event and process in, in South Asia's history. In the world, let's, let's be Absolutely. real. Absolutely. So, so that, 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 that division uh, and, and the subsequent hostilities between Pakistan and India explain in large part what happens to Pakistan. So it's, I mean, you know, you, there is absolutely no way that you can wish away partition as the primary single biggest factor in what ails mm. Pakistan and to a large extent India. Inside all that bargaining around partition was a very fundamental idea of Pakistan, full of nuance, but the essence of it seemed to be not only a homeland for the Muslims of British India, but the idea of a Muslim standard of social life, political life, togetherness in the world. I'd love to hear your sense of where that idea is today. Well, I mean, obviously the idea has constantly been utilized by uh, certain elements who believe that they are the guardians of the faith in this country, who have used it as an excuse to, first of all, uh, enhance their own locus standi, their own power mm. in, in the country, and their, and, and, and their wish to call the shots, basically, to, to be a kind of a supra-parliament presiding over the country's constitution. I mean, one of the great demands has been um, they cannot have a law that's, uh, that is sort of uh, against Islam, that goes against the spirit of Islam. So th those people have utilized it throughout. I mean, th those who believe that because the country was created in the name of Islam, uh, they have a right to decide what kind of Islam. What's your sense of how that idea, and it was a very idealistic notion 
the time. Well, I think uh, the, I mean, what I'm trying today. to explain to you is that Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League were fighting a political battle. Uh, the Pakistan demand was primarily a political idea. Jinnah was averse to any attempt, uh, and there were attempts made, to force him to commit himself to the kind of polity Pakistan would be, Islamic or otherwise. He always insisted that the kind of polity that Pakistan would be would be decided by the people of Pakistan, either by parliament, and, and, and that he was not going to uh, commit himself to saying that Pakistan would be an Islamic state or whatever. Uh, by an Islamic state, if it, that meant that it would be ruled by a bunch of clerics, that was clearly not the intention of the Muslim League, and they fought that tooth and nail. Uh, I mean, the presumption that Pakistan was doomed to be a kind of a theocratic state is some completely false. I hear that idea of an Islamic way of living in communities and otherwise attributed to the poet Muhammad Iqbal, who really did believe in in something special about uh, Muslim life. He also felt it had thrived perhaps more than any place in India. He died before World War II. Um, what about that idea itself, the Iqbal notion of, of, of a Muslim way? I think if you, if you juxtapose uh, Iqbal's visionary ideals uh, uh, as far as Islam um, um, are concerned and against those of the jamaat islami leader Abu al Maududi, you'll begin to see that there is a clear difference. Hmm. Uh, the sort of Islam that Iqbal spoke about um, was averse to the centralization of religious authority because, as he claimed in a very early lecture of his, uh, it circumscribed the autonomy of the individual. Hmm. Um, in, in his very, very um, uh, important uh, reconstruction of, of religious thought lectures, uh, he makes it very clear that um, uh, he does not regard uh, uh, the, 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 the state in Islam as a theocracy. I mean, that the primary goal of the state, as he puts it, is to allow for the creation of um, a, a, a society where uh, the individual can realize his spiritual, I mean, I mean he can, he can, his ideals. So he called for a, he called for a spiritual democracy. Mm. So it was not that kind of suffocating authoritarian state that happened to emerge in the mind of someone like Abul Allah Maududi where the state would be all-determining. So uh, the, the difference between uh, Iqbal's idea of the Muslim uh, polity was that it would simply be enabling, it would enable mm. the people to live in accordance with Islam and to realize their spiritual potential, whereas for Maududi, it was a much more controlling uh, authoritarian setup. So I think that's what comes out. That while I don't deny that Iqbal has been open to myriad interpretations yeah. and misinterpretations, and he's entirely appropriable because he's a poet, <laughs> um, uh, so he can be appropriated. But I think that there is if a, a deeper study and analysis of Iqbal's idea of being Muslim is clearly very distinct from that mm. of a fundamentalist, quote-unquote, Madhudi idea. So there is a difference. Can you put your finger on an idea of Pakistan that's working itself out today? A single idea? Maybe a, a web of three well, or I five. Well, I think the, 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 the idea that clearly works is that there is a sense that uh, they're not Indians. Uh, I think that, that, that whatever you might say about the failures of Pakistan's nationalism uh, uh, to, to give a sense of unity, there is a sense of distinctiveness towards Indians. Uh, I think Pakistanis who are less aware of that when they 
go to India, come back and realize that they are different. So there is this distinction. So I think that's playing a part. Um, I, I, I also think that, uh, so there is the sense of being shafted. I mean, they're, they're, they're not part of the Indians. They're, 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 on, they're, they're different. And, and of course, they're within, Pakistan's a very uh, uh, multifarious society. There are people of all different ilks here. Um, there are those who want to be closer to Saudi Arabia and others who don't. Uh, so that, that, that conflict remains. And Iran. And, Iran, uh, and there are those who want to just be themselves and they have their own sort of folklore, their own folk, folk traditions. They're proud of them. So all these are happening at the same time. Mm. The country has a lot more. I do think that there's a tendency to over uh, emphasize the, 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 the purely political. And the political in this sense is yeah. sort of narrowly defined as the electoral arena. Uh, the po- politics in this country is, a, uh, I mean, you know, they have to be looked through the informal areas as well, the informal sectors. That's also political. I should allow so many kinds of people have said to me in Pakistan something fundamental happened in the 80s, and it was all bad. An older man, a radio executive, was saying to me the other day with astonishing feeling that the 80s, the Reagan-Zia combination, that first war for Afghanistan to get the Russians out, crushed this society in so many ways. And, and other people say it in different, different fashions. I mean, that man said it'll, it could take forever to repair the damage to what he felt growing up had been a sort of milk and honey Pakistan. Well, I mean, I think that Pakistan's problems go back uh, to the moment of its creation. Um, and there have been sort of uh, persistent uh, issues that have uh, dogged Pakistan ever since its creation. But there's no denying that the strategic Change. I mean, the the, 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 the change in the geostrategic situation uh, post the Soviet invasion was a watershed uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the policies adopted by the military regime. Then, uh, the military regime uh, was not simply pursuing um, uh, a policy aimed at ridding uh, the region of the Soviet presence, but was using that threat to Pakistan's existence uh, to solidify its own roots within Pakistan. Uh, Following um, uh, Bhutto's uh, hanging, um, the military was at its lowest. Uh, It was was literally sort of uh, shaking. Um, uh, And the the Soviet invasion came as a great boost. Uh, It it, it bolstered uh, Zia's uh, regime, making it the longest surviving, uh, something that he owes to the U.S. It brought in lots of greenbacks, lots of money came. It was a period of prosperity. And it was a decisive step, not only because of the uses made of militant Islam uh, Mm. to uh, uh, allow the military to uh, wage uh, the war against the Soviets, uh, but also because the the, the, the sort of uh, infusion of U.S. dollars matched dollar by dollar by Saudi money resulted in a scenario where the society was up for sale. People, you know, it was a transformative process. Uh, That is what has changed Pakistan fundamentally. So it is the most crucial moment. But to say that everything was milk and honey and it only started there as a historian, I'm afraid that's not something I can subscribe to. There were problems, but that was also a qualitative change. It saw a further entrenchment of the military's role in Pakistan. It resulted in uh, a further uh, fragmentation and um, uh, uh, polarization of civil society, uh, or what there is of this society. Uh, So uh, I think that there's no question that that has been, I mean, a a three-decade-long policy has really been, has taken a very heavy toll of Pakistan. 
so there's no question about that, the, the arms and drugs economy, uh, the drugs to fund and funnel weapons. Uh, a lot of the weapons made their way into Pakistani society. Um, not just the, all the weapons went to Afghanistan, a lot of money came in as well. So those, I mean, that is where the qualitative changes take place in attitudes, in attitudes towards Islam. I do, I would connect that moment in Pakistan's history with a broader global assertion of Islam, which can be traced as early as um, the 73 Arab-Israeli war and the quadrupling of oil prices subsequently. The importance of Arab or petrodollars for mm. Pakistan has to be acknowledged. But really, by the mid-70s, if shifts are in place, uh, it comes to fruition completely with the, by, by the end of the decade, 79, with the Soviet invasion, um, of, I mean, the, the Iranian revolution. Things have changed significantly. So the 80s are crucial uh, in mm. Pakistan's history and I think in global history. Yeah. We will continue to reckon with the 80s and their legacy. But it has to be said that after Ziaz's death in 88, um, the blown legacy... Up, blown out of the sky, we don't quite know why. Well, he, yeah, I mean, it was obviously a... Uh, I mean, it's attributed to a technical failure, but I don't think many people believe that. <laughs> um, uh, but the fact is that his elimination, along with the top brass, was, again, a crucial change. Uh, but the important thing is that Ziaz's legacies outlived him. And those legacies in many ways, I mean, a lot of people talk about the decade of, um, uh, you know, 88 to 99 as the lost decade. That was the decade when an attempt was made to transition back to uh, democracy. Successive governments, whether Benazir's or Nawaz Sharif's came, people have a very low opinion of that decade. But that decade was very crucial. First, in the continuation of a policy associated with Zia towards Afghanistan, towards the militancy there. Uh, number two, uh, also the, the, the effects within Pakistan in terms of this uh, supposedly uh, uh, greater emphasis on religious piety, which seems to have become a factor, which I again connect with a broader global Islamic assertion. Right. Aisha Jalal, Americans are famous for not knowing their own history, not remembering it anyway. Does Pakistan walk around thinking about its history? No, they don't. I mean, the, the, the hist history is not taught in Pakistan at all. I mean, what is taught here is ideology. They teach something called Pakistan studies, uh, which is deemed to be a, pro a, a, a sort of manifestation of what they call Pakistan ideology. Pakistan was created in the name of Islam. That is it. You don't study the other factors that I had mentioned in my earlier response to you. or What else happened? What was the power-sharing arrangement they wanted? Why did they want it? Uh, how do you explain that if the country was created in the name of Islam, uh, that there are more Muslims living out of Pakistan than there are in uh, India and Bangladesh? So by teaching the people of Pakistan ideology rather than history, or rather teaching them history in order to make good Muslims out of them, has resulted in a scenario where there is no analytical ability. There is no sort of uh, awareness of the importance of the investigative mode to understand and uh, study history. Uh, so people have a lot of views, have a lot of opinions, uh, unstudied opinions mm -hmm. about their history, and that clouds their sense of judgment. Uh, attitudes. So, I mean, that has been a major problem. One of the major, I mean, in, in connection with history is this whole general demise of the social sciences in Pakistan. Hmm. 
The social sciences have been ailing for a long, long time. A society that does not have the social sciences is not going to be very adept in handling the problems of the world as they emerge. I mean, not everything is reducible to a technological solution. You do need the capacity to think, to think critically, to think through. And that, that is something that is simply lacking in the educational system. Describe this, this gap you're trying to fill. The gap is between uh, a concept of history as taught, as understood by the majority of Pakistanis who think that history is about the past and history is all sort of passé. It has no relevance. So there's no real understanding of what history is. Uh, as I said, history basically means to investigate. Uh, so that investigative mode, uh, the, the, the inability to uh, uh, deal with hard facts or come to your opinions based on hard facts, is a, there's a real proneness to fantasy, to conspiratorial thinking. Mm. Uh, so history, the, te- the teaching of history as a method, as a way of thought, I mean, that's why history is called the queen of the social sciences, um, <laughs> because it does teach you how to think uh, about the past and that there could be myriad uh, uh, interpretations of the past, but that you try to approximate the likelihood by gathering, garnering evidence to, to prove what really happened. That kind of investigative uh, spirit is not being inculcated, sadly enough, amongst the youth of Pakistan. And that, I think, is very important to do. You are famous in intellectual circles around the world for this argument and the discovery, in a sense, that this is not the country that the father of his country, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, really had in mind. Is that a presentable argument in Pakistan Well, today? I mean, if you're talking about Pakistan as it stands today, Pakistan with its... Uh, uh, bouts of, of, of unreasonableness, uh, its, its sort of uh, treatment of minorities, uh, the killing of minorities, the blasphemy laws, uh, a whole succession of things is clearly not the Pakistan that the founder of Pakistan imagined. The founder of Pakistan was first and foremost a constitutional lawyer who believed in the supremacy of the law, something that has never somehow uh, caught um, uh, the imagination of Pakistanis. They may talk about it, but this country does not know how to follow the law. There is no law. There's, I mean, each man is a law unto himself. Whoever can uh, you know, uh, uh, grab it, that's it. Uh, so that's the fundamental departure. Secondly, he always, when he spoke about Pakistan as, as, as a Muslim state, he envisaged a democratic, mm. uh, enlightened uh, Pakistan. So in, in what I'm saying is that so there are many levels at which this country departs from Jinnah's ideal. Mm. But the interesting thing that I've discovered is that by the same token, everyone or most people do hark back to Jinnah's Pakistan. So while they have moved away from Jinnah's Pakistan as an ideal, it remains as the main point of discussion. That's something that is hopeful, I think. We're speaking about relations between the United States and Pakistan as a matter of leaders, presidents, generals, armies, the Pentagon, ISI, CIA, this sort of thing. What so many Pakistanis want to talk about today is the gap in the social connection, the intellectual connection between Pakistan and, shall we say, the world conversation. Not to mention that Pakistanis know that they are second-class citizens when they come up to the immigration barrier in the United States. They're also very angry that they don't get to play the part in American intellectual life that Indians do. Now, sort that out. Well, I mean, there is, first of all, that's based on a, a, a fundamental opinion that there is anti, there's Islamophobia. 
I think that there is, the, I mean, that would be the simplest way to begin. That right, is, right or wrong? Or, or, or should we talk about it? I mean, I think that there's a sense that there is an American-Israeli-Indian connection. That's, a, I mean, the conspiratorial mode, uh, that they're opposed to, 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 to Pakistan as a Muslim country, and what is more, a Muslim country that has nuclear capability. So there is this great fear that simmers. Uh, in the minds of a lot of Pakistanis. Um, there's also the view that India, I mean, of course, India is a larger market. India is, uh, is, is opportunity for the U.S. for business purposes, strategic purposes, uh, and that India naturally has to look good for Pakistan. So, I mean, so, so in Pakistan has to look bad in order for India to look good. I mean, that kind of contrast is there because these two have always been the offsets. Mm. I mean, so India, India, can, India looks good precisely. I mean, you know, you refuse to see, the world refuses to see what ails India. Because Pakistan is ailing so badly. Mm. Mm. So it deflects from India's myriad problems, whether it's the Maoist insurgency, whether it's the infrastructural crisis, whether it's a myriad other problems. You don't see those. You just talk about India going places. And India is going places, but India has 101 other problems, <laughs> which the world doesn't want to see. So yes, the marketing is superb. India is extremely well packaged and presented. Pakistanis have no control over the narratives of, on Pakistan internationally. The Why not? Why not? Because they've, made a, they've, made a, they've boshed it up. But part of the reason is because of really extended periods of military rule, uh, self-deception, uh, I think the educational systems in Pakistan, uh, the, the way they project their own personality, the, 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 the identity of their country. Um, so I think there's a whole, I mean, there are many levels. I think it's a failure of the Pakistanis. Uh, but also, I think that there is a bias uh, also uh, that, that they, they believe exists in because they have a nuclear capability um, uh, 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 and, and because of their opposition to India, Israel, etc. So there's a part of the global aspect as well. The Pakistanis believe that. Mm -hmm. Whether it's true or not remains. But I do think that this notion of India as, as the rising power and Pakistan as some kind of a, 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 a drags India down is, is, is very strongly entrenched in the Western media. Mm. I think the Western media does not really understand Pakistan, certainly doesn't understand the history of this region, to understand why Pakistan in many ways exists because the Congress party wanted it to be created. Dueling slogans, I mean, incredible India as opposed to Pakistan Te rising. Epicenter, epicenter <laughs> of terror. The most dangerous place in the world. So, I mean, it seems to be a particular marketing ploy. I mean, in order for a place that has myriad problems to look okay compared to a disaster, that's what India, why India looks so good. So Pakistan has to look bad in order for India to look good. I mean, the main difference at the moment um, would have to be the economy. I mean, India's economy is going places and Pakistan is stagnant. That is the great sort of question for Pakistanis, why that has happened. Yeah. And that, in fact, I think is an opportunity for the world, I mean, because of the economic factors to make Pakistan, to help Pakistan, to wean Pakistan away from a policy uh, which was crafted in response to a specific geostrategic concern and also uh, the requirements of a military regime to perpetuate itself. It's not been something that's been talked about by all Pakistanis. That I think is a, I mean, everybody, I think, wants economic uh, development. Uh, some of the softening towards India is also based on the fact that India is rising economically. I think that's where the West needs to focus. I mean, with yeah. the opportunities, I do think that the people of Pakistan ultimately are pragmatic. Uh, and and, 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 and there, is, there is hope to change. Aisha Jalal, it's a joy to meet you on your home ground. Thank you, Aisha well, thank Jalal. Thank you. Thank you for coming. 
Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in Lahore with the historian Aisha Jalal. Our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zamine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan, thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Jung Media Group. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation. <laughs>